you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. You can also just uh, look at Isaiah 62. I mentioned just a few things in my opening about Isaiah 62. But you'll need to keep your finger in Proverbs chapter 3. In the coming weeks, we'll begin to consider the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, specifically the Olivet Discourse. And in thinking about the Olivet Discourse over weeks and months previous, there's some things that we need to consider by way of introduction this morning, and we'll continue with some introduction in the weeks ahead. As we're thinking about this introduction to the Olivet Discourse, we're recognizing that what will be seen and heard in the preaching of the Lord Jesus is a context to the unfolding of what is most near future to the disciples, and they're dealing with the context of that. Um, This is going to be the sense of understanding what is happening as they will see the Lord Jesus march to his death, they will see his resurrection or see his resurrected body and then they will also see his ascension and they will be marching forward to do the work of Christ as the book of Acts tells us. But there's a recognition that in the time and at the moment that they're hearing the preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus after the triumphal entry, there's, it had to just completely boggle their minds what was taking place. And as we unfold the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, we need to think about what these disciples were hearing and what they were being called to do in the context of their lives. If we're thinking about that time frame, we're thinking of the preaching of the Lord Jesus previously and bringing forth the new covenant in and of itself. Jesus himself had been been preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He'd been saying that himself. He had unfolded what we went through some months ago in the Sermon on the Mount very carefully to them. And all along the way, the new covenant is being unfolded. When we read Isaiah 62 this morning, we were considering the context of the new covenant because Isaiah 62 has some matching idea with Jeremiah 31. In verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. This is an identification of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, you'll no longer have to teach each one of them to know the Lord. Why? Because the essence of the new covenant is breaking through the context of national Israel. God had always been regenerating dead souls, but national Israel had been that display for millennia. 
And yet, even in national Israel, not all knew the Lord. Not all praised Him. Not all loved Him. National Israel was rampant, rampant with idol worship. God had given them a specific way to worship, and they had put it aside for decades, hundreds and hundreds of years. Isaiah prophesying of this new covenant, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. These disciples in the life and time of Christ, they are hearing this new covenant preached right before their eyes. They are seeing it. The unfolding of all those prophecies, all of those things given by God's prophets in times past. They're watching that unfold. And as they're watching all of that unfold and they're hearing the teaching of the Lord, there's times where they come to the Lord Jesus and what did they say? That was hard. That was a difficult teaching. What do you mean by that? Some things the Lord Jesus would explain to them, right? He would give them a little more information and, and a little more revelation. But other times, even some of the information still was hidden to them. In essence, the Lord Jesus was giving this unfolding of Isaiah and Jeremiah in the context of his work time and time again, and he's preaching about it, and here's the new covenant unfolding before their eyes, and yet they're seeing pieces of it, they're understanding bits of it, and when you come to the Olivet Discourse, their minds are going to be blown. Whoa, wait, what? The temple's going to be destroyed? What? Don't you see it, Jesus? It's massive. It's huge. It's magnificent. Essentially, the Lord Jesus is saying to them, you need to trust me in what I'm teaching you, what I'm explaining to you, and you need to trust me that I will lead you in the paths of righteousness. So before we begin to even introduce the Olivet Discourse itself, we are brought to a major tenet of Christianity, which is trust in the Lord with all your heart. In Proverbs chapter 3, the Proverbs writer expresses this in very clear wording in verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Trusting the Lord is one of the major tenets of Christianity. As we move to consider the Olivet Discourse of the Lord Jesus, which is spoken near the end of his life on this earth, there will be a call that he gives to his disciples. This call will be to trust in him. 
trust in him with their whole heart and not to lean on their own understanding. They see a temple and its magnificence, and the Lord Jesus says, it will be destroyed. They're going to have to trust in him for more even than that building being destroyed, right? They have followed him this far as he has healed many, preached much, and endured the harassment and divisiveness of the religious leaders of his day. Now they will hear of near future coming days and a glance at a far future day. How will they fare? How will they endure? They will fare well and endure to the end only if they trust in the Lord with all their heart. Let us consider this morning this call to trust in the Lord with all your heart. As the Proverbs writer has put it so poignantly and so directly, it's as if he gives these words just so directly that it's just like, you're not even supposed to stop and think about it. This is just it. Boom, here it is. The Proverbs writer gives the command and explains the meaning of this phrase, trust in the Lord. And furthermore, he provides the positive consequence for those that trust in the Lord with all their heart. Number one, this morning, we are commanded to trust in the Lord. The disciples will have to follow closely in this thinking as they hear the Olivet Discourse, that they are commanded to trust in the Lord. One writer says the command to trust God with all your heart means that the total personality is to be committed to God's care. And it certainly emphasizes the mind and volition. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The idea here is to, to totally, with the whole of your person, mind and heart, will to trust in Him, even in your personality. Sometimes we want to talk about the importance of trusting God and we want to say, well, sometimes my personality doesn't fit all that. No. To trust in the Lord with all your heart is in the fullness of your person and being. And that's in the context of even your personality. Whoever you are. If you're a person that's Extremely optimistic and up and your personality glows everywhere. Well, that needs to be in the context of your trusting the Lord. If you're a person who's maybe a little more down, then your personality still needs to come into the context of trusting the Lord. If your personality is a little more high strung, and you're a passionate person, well, it's not just about being passionate is about actually and honestly trusting in the Lord with the whole of your mind and your volition. Number one, we have three contexts here. Letter A, trust is built upon complete reliance on God. When we look at the word trust here used in the Hebrew uh, sense, it is this trust that is complete reliance on God. When you're going to trust the Lord, you're trusting in who He is. 
It is a reliance on who God is. I think the psalmist says it best in Psalm 9:10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. To know God's name is to know him. Every time there's a recognition of knowing God, especially in the context of the scripture, that recognition is given that to know the name of God is to know him. You tell them, I am sent you. God was naming himself to Israel when they were in captivity in Egypt. So this trust is a complete reliance on God, reliance on who he is. He is the one true living God. There's no other. Reliance on his goodness, reliance on his strength and power and might, reliance on his very being that he alone is perfect in all ways. The things the disciples will hear, they will have to trust in the very name of God and that which has been shown to them in the revelation of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They will have watched him preached. They will have seen him perform these miracles. They will have walked with him in daily life. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. They actually walked with him in daily life. They saw who he is. And they would have to have that reliance, that full reliance on who he is. Trust is built on complete reliance on God. That also is a reliance on what God says. The psalmist once again reminds us, So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. I trust in your word. This complete reliance on God is built on who he is, and it's also built on what he says. And he's given us his word. And once again, now remember, these disciples are going to have to hear the Lord Jesus preach the the last of his greatest sermons. And it is going to completely boggle their minds in some places and they are really going to have to trust in the Lord for what he says. Letter B, trust is built upon complete assurance in God. The word trust here in the Hebrew not only has the sense of reliance, but it has the sense of of, of assurance. There's an assurance in God's knowledge. There's an assurance in God's wisdom. We'll get to the, the denials here in the text in just a moment. But there's a recognition that when we're looking at this, this trusting is a trusting of assurance in God. That God is all knowing. That God has all wisdom. If we were to turn to John chapter 6 and hear the teaching of the Lord Jesus concerning salvation, and remember that the disciples were questioning some of that teaching because they were saying, Is this not hard teaching? Is this not difficult teaching? No one comes unto the Father but by me. The Lord is the one who draws them. The Lord is the one who does this work. You can imagine in their minds they're thinking, well, wait a second now. I mean, that kind of takes some of our 
our steam away as humans here. Well, does God not have better knowledge and wisdom on how to deal with humans in saving them than we do in saving ourselves? goes to Paul's question, who are you, a man, to talk back to God and why you created me this way? To trust in the Lord with all your heart is a complete assurance in God, his knowledge and his wisdom. Paul sums it up this way, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who can be his counselor? you go through the scope of the book of Job, a great part of that scope is Job working through all the questions that he has. And ultimately, toward the end of the book, Job comes to a real trust in the Lord, doesn't he? Because in his coming to a real trust in the Lord, we see him recognize, who has more knowledge than you, God? No one was there when you created the heavens and the earth. I was not there. I don't have that knowledge. I don't even have that power. You alone could do that and you alone had the wisdom not only to create it, but to plan it and sustain it in a particular way. The disciples will be confronted with similar issues as Job because as Job went through persecution, so will the disciples. Are they going to turn and be God's counselor? Well, now, God, let, let's talk about this a minute. I think it ought to kind of work out this way. I don't really need to have this persecution on me right now. I don't need to have to deal with this issue right now. I don't need to have to deal with that person right now. You know, they're a, they're a bit much to handle. So I'll, I just ask you, let's just take this and put this away over here, and I'm going to go deal with this. Who can be God's counselor? Trust in the Lord with all your heart means assurance in God and it's assurance in His knowledge, all-knowing knowledge and His all-knowing wisdom. Let us see. Trust is built upon complete compliance to God. Another element of this word trust is not just the reliance and the assurance, but it's compliance. Compliance to God's commands. The psalmist says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. If this is true, then we can recognize why the psalmist says in 119, 15 through 16, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. To have true trust in the Lord with all your heart is to comply with Him in obedience to who He is and to all of His precepts, His ways. It's to take the Word of God seriously, certainly from the context of the Ten Commandments and what it means to please God. And everything worked out from it in the fullness of how that's worked out through the Scripture. What would we say 
if we begin to not look carefully at the whole of God's word and to take into consideration how we would trust in him and we would do it our way instead of his. What wisdom do I have to sit down with God's word and say, well, I'll separate the testaments. I'll only take out the part and listen to the part I like. Right now, this is a real emphasis for me in my life, and so I'm going to really focus on this instead of the whole counsel of God. Psalmist says to be in compliance with God is to meditate on his precepts, to delight in his statutes. I think we have to admit that sometimes, and we can even see it in the life of the disciples, there's a, a real struggle to meditate on the things that God has asked us to meditate on. Take, for example, the Lord Jesus taking the disciples to pray. Here, you stay here and you pray, and I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray. And the Lord Jesus comes back, and what does he find? He finds them asleep. Did they see the magnitude of the situation? Apparently not. When something drastic or something just unimaginable happens in our lives, all of a sudden we're awakened to it and we become very alert and we, we become those who think about it rightly. If you have a friend whose house catches on fire and you don't have any fire extinguishers in your own home after you realize this could happen to your house, what do you do? You go and buy fire extinguishers. When you hear that they were able to put out a fire in their own home because they had the ability to do it, you begin to think. You begin to notice. You begin to pay attention. The disciples are going to be pressed to meditate on the word of God and delight in God's statutes in a way they have never done it before. For after the death of Christ, the next 30 years will shape them in ways they never could have imagined. But this compliance is not only to God's statutes or his commands, but it's a compliance to God's providence. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness. O God of our salvation, you who are the trust in all the ends of the earth, and in the, the farthest sea, the psalmist gives us an indication that our trust is to be able to look at everything around us and realize God is not only guiding all providence, but he has planned it all. That means it's been perfectly planned. Even in his ordering of second causes, his ordering of sin. Although he is not the author of sin, he is still sovereignly over sin in ordering it and putting it in its proper place and dealing with it rightly. Psalm 65 tells us 
not only when we look at the farthest sea do we see the work of God, but it goes on to tell us that we see his work when he calms the storm. Maybe you've been near a lake or uh, the ocean or something, and you've seen a storm come across that lake or that river or that ocean, and you've watched as everything has been just churned up. And as the storm begins to build and build and build and build, there's a time in there, there's a moment where it just continues to be so intense that you begin to ask yourself, is this going to subside? We have to trust God and his providence. That no matter whether it's a physical storm or a spiritual storm, it will subside at his care, at his purpose, in his time. You see, the disciples are going to have to deal with these kinds of questions. Well, what do you mean is going to happen, Lord? What do you mean? As we unfold it, he's going to be putting them in places to question these things. Don't you think Peter learned much after his denial of Christ? Exactly as the Lord Jesus had told him. This was learning to trust the Lord in his providence. Well, not only does this text tell us to trust in the Lord with all our heart, and this is in the the context of the whole of our being, mind and will, even our personalities. And it's very objective in its sense. But secondly, we are commanded to lean on godly wisdom. We are commanded to lean on godly wisdom. The text rightly says, verse 5b, do not lean on your own understanding. So letter A, do not lean wholly on human understanding. Do not lean wholly or completely on human understanding. The prohibitions, as one writer noted, against depending on one's own understanding and against intellectual pride, implicitly reject a secular search for wisdom and look back to the thesis of the very book. Speaking of Proverbs, what was that thesis of the book? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If one is rightly going to understand the world and to understand the context of the world and everything in it, and they're going to trust God in the whole of true wisdom, they have to not lean on their own understanding, but they have to understand that all right knowledge begins with fearing the Lord our God. The word fear there is not just the sense of uh, the idea of being completely scared and frightened all the time. Um, uh, Last night I heard Beth coming out of one room and saying to JB, JB, don't you scare me. Not that JB does that normally or anything. 
You, you know someone like that, right? A friend or a family member? You've probably even seen these videos where somebody is jumping out from behind a door or something else and they're scaring someone. It's even more difficult to watch it in person when you can see the person standing behind whatever it is and knowing the other person is coming and you're going on the inside. The fear being spoken of here is not in its greatest sense just that type of fear. The fear that's spoken of here it may be that on the day of judgment but to the one who is a believer it is a fear that is built in awe of who God is. Are you in awe of him? Or do you look around you and think the wisdom of the world is more awesome to you than the very God who gave all knowledge and wisdom? Are you in awe of his creating power and what he made? When you hear of an advance in medicine, are you first at all in of what God has done by creating the human mind that human minds could invent such things as artificial hearts, as artificial limbs? Most of the world has gotten to the place that they think that Many of these blessings are directly from just the human mind in and of itself. Somehow, some little primordial soup formed some other little creature, and over time, another little creature evolved into another little creature, and over time, another little creature evolved into another little creature, and somehow, over billions of years, we got a human, and there's a brain, and now we figured out our body enough that we can invent human hearts. All out of primordial soup makes no sense. To have intricate design means there's a designer and the scripture point blank tells us who that designer is and we should be in awe of him. So much awe that we would not lean wholly on our own understanding, human understanding, but we would reject that idea and we would bring human understanding under the guise of the very God who created the mind. Proverbs writer commands us to lean on godly wisdom. And to lean on godly wisdom, we must be in awe of the God who created all things and the God who saves sinners. Scripture not only tells us do not lean wholly on human understanding, verse 5b, but in verse 7 it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. In a very extenuated sense, the Proverbs writer is drawing upon the haughtiness of the lie of the devil in the garden. The lie of the devil in the garden to Eve and Eve to Adam was to say, hey, 
Think for yourself here. Trust in your knowledge. Don't lean on the knowledge of God, which He gave to you specifically, which He gave to you without any real problem at all. If you had asked Adam and Eve, and in a sense they were asked this, did you understand God's command? Well, why, yes, we did. So in a sense, what you're saying is he gave you a command. That command was based in knowledge, a knowledge that is all-knowing, a knowledge that has all wisdom, a knowledge that has the backing of all planning and power behind it. He gave you all of that right then and there. And what you said was, you know what? I'm going to listen to this talking serpent. Every time we go against the very wisdom of God and we lean on our own understanding, we are hearkening back to that lie in the garden. To say, you know what? I'll think through this myself. I won't spend time thinking through this in a biblical manner. I'm going to do it my way. The disciples are going to have to deal with that exact identification. We're even seeing it in the Hebrews lessons on Sunday mornings, aren't we? The call not to neglect so great a salvation. Don't drift away. Don't go back. Yet I think there's an important recognition here. Even in seeing this rightly, you need to understand that God is not denying the light of nature. The light of nature is not to be completely abandoned, but sanctified according to God's word. Some people say, well, we found out fire will burn just simply by trial and error. And so we've learned over time that fire burns. Who gave us the ability of the mind to work out light and heat? We need to understand that all these good gifts are from God and be in awe of him and not to be wise in our own eyes. Well, lastly this morning... We are commanded to acknowledge God in all of life. Number three, we are commanded to acknowledge God in all of life. Verse six, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. How are we to understand these things? we're not to be wise in our own eyes, the positive side of that in verse 7 is to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What's the first thing we must do to acknowledge God in all of life? Acknowledge God by repenting and continuing to turn from evil. 
Acknowledge God by repenting of your sin and continuing to turn from evil. This is the very essence of the gospel. This is what the disciples have been hearing from the Lord Jesus himself. John the Baptist preached it for a short time while he was uh, the precursor and, and he was the herald of Christ's coming in just a short amount of time. And as soon as the Lord Jesus' ministry begins, he says, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and believe in the Messiah. If we're going to acknowledge God in all of life, we must be, first of all, those who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have repented of our sin, recognizing that we have sinned against God. We have actually been in rebellion against him. This is something the disciples are going to have to continue to be reminded of. Even after Peter has been preaching a little while, does Paul not have to rebuke him? To remind him of the very essence of the gospel? If Peter needs to be reminded of the very essence of the gospel, how could one of us say, boy, I hope that preacher doesn't say anything about the gospel again today because you know he said something about the gospel for the last 20 years. Every Sunday. What is his problem? Doesn't he know we know it now? Believers need the gospel too. And if we don't believe that, there's a problem with us and our believing. We acknowledge God in all of life by repenting and continuing to turn from evil. We're still battling sin. We may not battle the same sin in the same exact way we battled it 10 or 15 years ago. But the very essence of these sins is still there. You may not outright lie to someone like you did before. But the desire in your mind to lie about certain situations is still there. And the thinking of that lying is still there. Secondly, acknowledge God and he will make your paths straight. Acknowledge God and he will make your paths straight. If we acknowledge him in all our ways, he will make our paths straight. What does this mean? Does it mean everything's going to go fine and we're going to feel good about everything and there's going to be no difficulties in life? No. It means based on acknowledging him rightly in all of our lives that we will be the ones who learn and grow in awe of God. We will be ones who lean wholly on his wisdom and his understanding so that when the difficulties come, he will straighten our path through them. Not that we will not go through them, but we will see them for what they are. Sometimes it is a time of testing. Sometimes it's a time of pruning and maturing. Many of you have been through difficult providences in life and you've come on the other side of those trusting in the Lord, realizing the Lord took you through that difficult providence to grow you and mature you in ways that you would not have been grown and matured had you not gone through that.
path of righteousness is always straight because the path of righteousness is always in the proper context, being in awe of God and submitting to him in compliance to his commands and to his providence. I encourage you sometime to read the Puritans on the issue of contentment. It's a pretty sobering study and one that we probably need to go through more often in our own lives. But I've recognized in my own life as I've gotten older and I've seen it in the lives of Christians that one of our greatest issues is discontentment. When we are discontent, we bounce here and there and here and there, always trying to find or fix something our way. God, I have a child who doesn't do this or doesn't do that, so I'm going to bounce over here and do this and try to... And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do this. If you're trying to do all of that in your own understanding, or you have a spouse you want to fix and do it in your own understanding, that path won't be straight. It will be a path of discontentment, and it will go one place to another, bouncing here and there. Speaking the gospel thoughtfully and rightfully, to unbelievers is certainly a part of what God has called us to. But there's not a one of us in this room that saves or changes anyone. Discontentment will only bring us down, it will cause us confusion, and it will be a wandering path. path of righteousness, trusting in the Lord, his means, his ways, what he has prescribed. That's a straight path. Keeps us from discontentment, keeps us trusting in him and being content in what he's doing. Does it mean we do nothing? No. It means we do those things which God has commanded us to do. And we stay steadfast in those things but we don't make up things for ourselves to do. Let her see. Acknowledge God and he will give comfort to your body and mind. Acknowledge God and he will give comfort to your body and mind. Do not be wise in your own eyes, verse 7. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Most of us in the room, as we've grown older, we have aches and pains. Um, a good friend of mine here at the church says to me often, getting old is not for sissies. What's interesting here, though, is that the psalmist, or excuse me, the Proverbs writer is not promising to us that everything will go the way we want to with our physical bodies, 
But when we're walking in the path of the Lord, acknowledging him, trusting in him with our whole heart, it will be a healing to our body and refreshment to our bones. Who's to say that death is not healing? For those who die in the Lord, they are led by the great shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. They only see the mere shadow of it. When the Lord Jesus was raised on the third day, he gave great hope to all who would believe in him that although this world is filled with sickness and pain and difficulty and trial and struggle, that those who trust in the Lord will have ultimate healing to their bodies and refreshment to their bones. And while we're on this earth, he gives us refreshment. This is why the word of God becomes so dear to us. It's interesting to read different Christian biographies and hear how men and women of faith down through the ages, in times of great pain and struggle, physical difficulty in their lives, they found great refreshment in the very word of God. As we begin to unfold all of that discourse, we will see how important these words are to the disciples. They will be called to action, but the greatest action they will be called to is to trust the Lord with all their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength. Christ will tell them of looming difficulty ahead in the coming days. Their Savior and Lord will be arrested, beaten, and crucified. They will be confronted with life on earth after his resurrection and ascension. They will be used to usher in the new covenant church age. They will be persecuted. Some of them will be beaten. Some will even be martyred, murdered. Some of them will see the very destruction of Jerusalem which they could not have fathomed. And it will be obliterated not just the temple itself. What will bring them comfort? What will bring refreshment to their bones? When they see the smoldering heat of the city of Jerusalem, the dust flying in the air of what's left of this place, The only thing to give them refreshment will be the very word of God that they were left with. The words of the prophets interpreted rightly through the eyes of Christ. And the very coming of the comforter in a way that they never could have imagined. That new covenant scripture would come forward 
and bring the best of all revelation of who God is and what he's done through his son. I say for you and I, that's our comfort too. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day to glory in you alone, to worship you, that we would sing psalms and hymns and songs and pray unto you and read your word and hear it preached. We give you thanks for this day and I ask that by the power of your spirit you work in our hearts. Lord, take discontentment away that we would strive in the truth of your word to be content not only in who you are first and foremost but all that you have done and what you are teaching us. Lord, we ask your mercy upon our souls as we come to the time of the table. Bring us to the table in remembrance of the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus, and his very work on this earth. All glory and honor be given to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.